Outliers in Education is brought to you by CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness. Better data, better decisions, better schools. To find out more, visit effectiveness.org. Summer has officially arrived. For many educators, it's time to rest, recover, and reflect. This time away from school and the window for reflection it provides can be every bit as important as the months we spend inside our schools. We'll show you why on today's episode of Outliers in Education. That's what we're all about in letting our kids be successful. If you want to achieve something, then surround yourself with the people you want to become. Because kids are kids in small districts, rural districts, urban, kids are kids. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Outliers in Education, where we pick the brains of top educators and experts in a never-ending quest for educational improvement. I'm your host, Eric Price, along with my friend and co-host, Eric Bowles, from the Center for Educational Effectiveness. Bullsy, summer is here. Why aren't we out laying on the beach or maybe hitting the pickleball around? Well, I think the short answer is we're not very smart. The longer answer when we tie that to education is in the last 10 years or so, we've really seen the summer pick up. It's really hard to compete with all the tasks at hand in the summer, really uh, getting the next year started, scheduling professional development, handling a, a thousand different activities. Uh, when I first started in education last century, because I am that old, used to actually feel like there was a little bit of a window in the summer where you could let your hair down a little bit. And today I'm really excited to learn about how do we manage those uh, compulsions around task with the appropriate reflection on what happened in our prior years so that uh, we can all move forward both a bit rejuvenated uh, and a little bit smarter and hopefully more skilled uh, in the next academic year. I couldn't agree more, Bulls. And that's why this month we have the perfect guest. Alliteration, wait for it. Allow me to introduce the positively prolific Pete Hall. He's got 12 years as a principal. He's now an author, a speaker, and a leadership coach. He's written 11 books, many of them focused on what he terms a reflective practice. He's currently at work on his 12th book, Always Strive to Be a Better You, How Ordinary People Can Live Extraordinary Lives. Pete, dude, we are so glad you're here. Holy smokes, Eric's. I appreciate the invitation. It's good to be here. It's good to uh, have some opportunity to let hair, I let hair down. I have none, I have none to speak of. I'm glad this is a podcast because I have the hairdo for a podcast for sure. Ah, uh, that's awesome. Pete, we've been talking about summer as a time for educators to reflect. Um, when you refer to reflective practice uh, in many of your works, what is it about and why is it so important? Well, self-reflection is the foundation upon which we build skills or grow or learn something. You know, there's an expression, um, we don't learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on our experience. And it's just this, the idea of being attuned to our own thinking and directing our, our thoughts and our reflections in a specific direction. A lot of us the way we typically default to thinking about something or reflecting on something is we pay attention to the shiny thing, whatever's going on, whatever catches our attention. And the art of self-reflection is really about directing our reflective energy in a specific direction based on what we're trying to learn, what we're trying to accomplish, what goals we have, or what we're, we're trying to get better at. So it, that's, that's the, the long and short of it. That's the short answer, I guess. So Pete, as you know, we're all about culture, measuring culture at the Center for Educational Effectiveness. How can these reflective practices impact our success as we strive to improve school culture? Is there some kind of secret ingredient here? 
secret ingredient. Of course, there's a secret ingredient. It's all about reflection, right? So when you talk about culture and uh, the way that we operate, what what my co-author Elisa Semerall and I have done over the course of our many projects and many books that we've written together is really identify the elements of culture that embody this reflective practice. So we refer to it as a culture of reflective practice, which includes just folks engaging in debate with each other, asking each other great questions, trying to figure things out. It's not always about having the answer. And so much in education, we spend so much of our energy and time trying to figure out what's the right answer, what's the right thing to do, what should we be doing right now? And it's really not about that. It's about asking the right questions and then muddling through it together, right? And when we create such an environment where there's not a right answer, it frees us up to try new things and to be inventive and to be creative and get outside the box. And we all know, and I think the the work that you've done over the past two decades, two plus decades, Eric, since the last uh, century, uh, <laughs> is this this big idea of of doing different because what we've done has not worked for all our kids. What we've done is really good for some kids and not good at all for other kids and other families and other populations. And so in order for us to expand our ability to impact every single child, we have to get outside the box and we have to not have a right answer going into it. And that's the that's the beauty of this work as far as our perspective is that it, it creates the opportunity for us to build systems and practices and opportunities for kids and families to thrive that maybe haven't before. Quick quick follow-up, Pete. We're in, we're in 20 years of public policy telling us that if we just write the right set of standards and align everything to them, that we're, we're going to ameliorate and cure everything that's wrong with the American education system. Um, how do you create this culture of innovation that you're talking about? Reflection, discussion, debate, there's no right answer. When it seems like we talk to so many of our peers and they're really going down the garden path of there just is one way to do it. Well, uh, I think a couple things have to happen. One is that I think we're on the right track when we talk about there's certain things that all kids should know. And I, what I think that big idea, that big idea is right, right? That there's certain things that we want all our kids to, to leave high school with or uh, to enter the working world or to, or to leave college with or whatever it might be. Having those standards, I think, is a powerful thing. One of the pieces I think we've gotten sideways is how many standards we have and how many different things we think every single kid should learn. And another, so that piece of it, I think, is okay. I think the question really becomes, will we allow educators the professional autonomy and will we allow schools and school systems and local boards enough autonomy to say, hey, if this is what we want our kids to learn and and know how to do, let's let's figure out the best way for us to do that for our kids. And how do we address every single student's needs as opposed to having prescriptive curriculum and very, very top-down hierarchical systems that, that tell folks how, how to do it, right? The other piece that I think is essential in this work is genuinely caring about every single child. And I, it's it's easy for us in education to pay lip service to that idea to say, yes, every kid. We, we believe in every kid. We believe in the potential of every kid. We're trying to support and nurture and, and encourage every single child. And the reality is our, our policies and our programs don't. They don't address every single child. They address a big chunk in the middle or the middle top half and leave a lot of kids behind. So 
that's the that's the other piece of it is we have to truly commit to every single child, which forces us to not do everything the same for every kid. Ah, I love that, Pete. I wish, I wish that's if we just took that piece away and all of our educators and policymakers just heard, ah, I, I love that. But I digress. So if we take a look at some culture pieces here, Pete, and 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 I think it's becoming really uh, this preeminent piece with all of the things that we're dealing with. Um, can you go back and look at some of your time as a principal, some stories that might highlight some of those uh, pieces that um, we really got to get into this reflective practice piece. What what comes to mind? Yeah, there's there's actually a story from one of my earlier principalships where um, a group of, well, I had taken over a school that was uh, underperforming and really needed some help and, and was struggling. And I came into it, honestly, with, you know, I'm the principal. You know, I know stuff. <laughs> I've read things. I know about, you know, best practices. I know, you know, John Hattie's early stuff and Bobby Marzano's research. I know what's what teachers are supposed to do. I know what schools are supposed to do. So I wrote a 25-page school improvement plan by myself. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, this is it. This is what we got to do. And I remember, thank goodness, I had a, um, a leadership mentor who sat down with me and I gave, him, I gave him a copy. And he looked at it and he says, what's this? And I said, well, this is the school improvement plan. This is what the school needs to do. I know this. I got this. And he's, and I'd never forget, he took it and he literally threw it on the floor. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing? Yeah. That was like $7 at Kinko's. <laughs> but don't do this. Yeah. And, and he said, Pete, whose plan is this? I said, this is our plan. He said, no, no, no. Whose plan is this? And I said, oh, this is my plan. And he said, okay, so let's figure out what we're going to do to make it be ours Hours as in the staff, the community. How do we get everybody on board to do this work together? And it totally opened my eyes to the idea of I need to recruit big brain people. I need to recruit people that are in the trenches. I need to recruit people who have, you know, skin in the game, you know, all the stakeholders together and say, what do we really want? And that's where we started is what do we really want? We changed the question away from what are we doing that we could fix? And what are we already doing that we could do better? We changed that to what do we actually want? And then we built systems and structures to do that. And it was amazing. The conversations that I had with my staff and with the parent community and even neighbors and business owners in the community that didn't even have kids in the school contributing to that dialogue around building the, the ideal system and structure for every single kid. It was amazing. We wrestled with some really tough questions. We had some really underserved populations historically. We had some kids that really struggled, families that were totally disenfranchised. And we reached out and brought everybody to the table to build that. And the questions, the conversations, the debate, the arguments about, no, if we're going to do this for kids, we have to do it this way. And folks were saying, there's 101 ways to skin a cat. I know that's not a good expression to use, but that's, and that was what my school secretary said. She said that all the time, no matter what happened, if someone would come in and say, hey, should I do this or this? And she would always say, there's 101 ways to skin a cat, so you choose. And that's, I mean, really, that was the spirit that we built that. Uh, we built our plan together. And I remember vividly when we kind of unveiled the plan at a, at a board meeting or with, to our, our supervisor, you know, the assistant superintendent, whatever it was that, it wasn't, it wasn't Pete doing all the talking. It was, it was, we shared all sorts of different people contributed different parts of that. And it was a beautiful thing when we, when we had all those voices and all those opportunities. Hmm. 
That, that's amazing, Pete. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a break, but we're going to be right back. Uh, you do not want to go away because that's just a tip of the iceberg. We'll be right back with more Outliers in Education right after this. The annual Women's Leadership Conference is back, returning to Spokane this October. Designed to unite and empower women educators, at the Women's Leadership Conference, you'll be surrounded with the support and inspiration you need to rise to the next level. Leading women educators from across the U.S. will help you develop leadership skills, work-life balance, conflict resolution, decision-making, and much more. Rise together at the second annual Women's Leadership Conference, October 13th through 15th. Brought to you by RLR Leadership Consulting. Clock hours available Register today at randyrussell.org. That's randyrussell.org. Welcome back to today's episode of Outliers in Education. We have got the incredible privilege of having the awesome Pete Hall with us. Uh, Pete, hey, we've got a lot of folks out there that are turning over in, in this environment right now. So uh, if you could think of me as uh, I'm new to the profession, new to the chair, or I just changed geographical positions to a different school, what kinds of advice would you give me uh, in that first year? <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for the adjectives that you used to describe me. This, is, <laughs> this has been fun. Fun with the thesaurus with Eric. Um, I, I would tell you, first of all, I'd tell you congratulations and my first piece of advice would be to remember why you're here. And I can't tell you how many different people I've said who, who or I've talked to who have said something like, oh man, I, I really want to be a principal. I really want to be a, a, a principal. And I'm like, why? And they say, well, because well, I, I want to be a principal. <laughs> you know, that's my goal is to be a principal. And the principal cannot be an end into unto itself, right? It's got to be a means to an end. So the principalship is an opportunity to, to change lives. It's an opportunity to lead people in a certain direction. It's it's a chance for us. It's it's potential sitting there. So remember why you get the job. Why are you striving for this? There's got to be a deeper, bigger reason. You want to impact a community. You want to change people's lives. You want to alter the trajectory of certain children. Then that's why you want to become a principal. And remember that. So write that down, engrave it somewhere, put it on the wall, put it in you know, put, I used to have a little post-it note uh -huh. on my uh, computer screen that said, always strive to be a better you. And that's the title of my upcoming book. And it was just that motivational force for me to remember that that's the spirit in which I live. And that's what I want to convey to others. And I want to share that with everybody I worked with. So just to constantly remind you of that piece. Yeah, just yeah. stay there because that helps keep you grounded in every yeah. decision that you're going to make and every conversation that you have. And it's it's easy to get distracted by the busy work of the principalship. There's a lot of there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of stuff that you do that you're like, why am I even doing this? Mm -hmm. And it's important to remember to prioritize your time and your energy towards the things that actually make a difference that help further you and your community towards that goal. So I would that's the first piece of advice would be just remember why you're there. Hey, along those lines, Pete, I've got a two-part question. First one, really simple. Second one, a little bit more complex. So I'm going to do a little preamble for the second one at the risk of uh, mild annoyance of our uh, producer. So first one, straightforward. What are the... He's laughing. It's good so far. What are, what are the greatest challenges facing a principal today? And then second part of it is um, self-care. What advice do you have around self-care? And here's the preamble. We hear self-care bannered around all the time. We see people saying, oh, make sure that you take care of yourself. Self-care is really important. And, and most of the time when I hear that message, I have no idea what they mean. So big challenges. And then 
What does self-care actually mean, Pete? Okay, Eric, those are, those are great questions. I didn't write them. <laughs> Even without the preamble, that would have been a great, great question. <laughs> Probably would have been better without yeah. the preamble, right? You know, the funny thing is when you ask the question, what's the biggest challenge for principals today? Uh, the answer is the same as it has always been for principals. I mean, we, you can throw things like the pandemic and virtual learning and hybrid, and you can throw, you know, com- conflict around race, and you can throw... Uh, school shootings. I mean, you could throw all those different things in there. Those are the the current incidents. Those are the current things, right? The the challenge for a school principal has always been the same, which is you're in middle management, mm-hmm. and middle management <laughs> in a high stakes environment is a really challenging spot because principals don't have nearly the amount of autonomy that we like to think they have. So, Mm -hmm. you know, teachers like to think, and I was a teacher and I remember thinking the same thing was, oh, my principal made that decision. My principal principal can do whatever he or she wants to do. And the reality is, as principal, no, you you don't get to do whatever you want to (laughs) do and and keep your job. That's not how it works. So you're (laughs) in a system, you have supervisors and you're following directives from the school board superintendent and however many different layers of bureaucracy to you. And so you're accountable to all that and you're responsible for motivating the troops, maintaining the vision, providing feedback and, and being that the answer person to a certain extent within your building. And obviously the more capacity you can build within your environment, uh, the more effective the your role is going to be an effective job you're going to do. That's the biggest challenge is being in middle management and trying to tightrope between kind of having no choice in some things. And then this illusion that you have choice and decision-making authority mm-hmm. at the same time. And that's the, I think that's the biggest challenge. And so that's something that as principals, we just have to come to terms with and be okay with, and then sort our decisions and sort our tasks and sort our time into this is controllable and this is uncontrollable. And I think that's the that's the biggest piece of technical work that principals do is understanding, well, what do I actually have say in and what mm-hmm. can we do at our building that's ours? And what are some things that we have to do because of the system that we're in right now? And then how do we how do we navigate that? And how do we be okay with the fact that sometimes you're just following orders and you have to paint that in a certain way for your staff so that everybody believes it was their idea to do it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the big challenge. And uh, second, second part of your question, following the preamble was about self-care. <laughs> and, I, and, and I think you nailed it. I, I totally think you nailed it, Eric, is that nobody really knows what that means because we all have our own interpretation of self-care because we have our own definition and experience of things that make us feel better. And I think the when you when you boil it right down to it, self care comes down to what are you doing for yourself that allows you to do what you need to do better, and how are you staying healthy, mind, body, spirit? How are you addressing yourself as a human being to make sure that what you do, you do as effectively and efficiently as you can? So a lot of us think of self care in terms of how am I taking care of myself so that my work goes better, and or they think of it in terms of how do I manage my workload so that my home life is happier? And the reality is everything's a balance, right? So there's a balance between mind, body, and spirit. There's a balance between home and work. 
there's a there's a ton of different ways that we just think of balance in our lives. And so just a couple different strategies that that I've been working on as I've been doing research. It's I like to call it. I actually lead a workshop on this. It's called Beyond Bathtubs and Bonbons. <laughs> and, and it's cool. self care is it's really about a couple different. It's about setting boundaries and adhering to those boundaries and maintaining those boundaries, you know, in all elements of your life. Mm-hmm. It's about knowing when you need help and being willing to ask for it, right? Knowing if you need a day off, if you need some time, if you need assistance with a project and asking for it, because so many of us don't advocate for ourselves because we're put in this position when we think, oh, I, I need to have the answers. I need to demonstrate to everybody that I'm worthy. So I can't ask for help because that's weakness. I actually believe when we ask for help of somebody else, that's a sign of strength. That's mm. almost the ultimate sign of strength because we're like, all right, I know myself so well that I know I can't do this by myself and I need assistance and support right now. And that is a sign of, of self-knowledge and strength that I think is, is unparalleled. But we see that as a sign of weakness if we as principals ask that often, right? Absolutely. And if you're building a, a culture of reflective practice, you're asking for help all the time. Right. That's just the way you do business. And, and when you do business that way as a default setting, no one bats an eye when you ask for help because they're like, oh, yeah. All right. Well, we have X number of people working here and we're here to support each other and get, get this work done. So, yeah, that's the way we go about it. So a couple things like that, I think, are, are more in tune with what an authentic definition of self-care really is, because that allows us to be effective in our jobs, that allows us to be present in our families, and it allows us to be successful no matter what we're doing, even EP when it comes to pickleball. That's difficult to understand. I couldn't get too much of that in there, but my wife would disagree. Beyond <laughs> bathtubs and bonbons, I, I sense another book coming Oh, holy smokes. I don't know if I have enough in me for that. <laughs> Maybe a blog post. I, I, there is this really, just as you're talking about this blending between self and others or uh, the, the greater good, when, when we start talking about why you get into the principalship and then once we get into it, because those are mostly self, and then when we get into it, we've really got to flip pretty quickly to this this vision of others and considering and serving others. And, and I think that's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just now just chunking all that through. And in that same theme, I think, when we start to take a look at this uh, capacity building that, that you might do as a leader, um, how would you do that? What, what's your end goal there? And, and what would be some uh, practicable steps to do that for, for a leader? Well, as a leader... I think that the um, part of the definition is of a leader is one who has followers. Hmm. So if if you are <laughs> in a position of leadership, or even if you are just leading, you don't necessarily need a title to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the responsibilities is to tend to the flock, right? To take care of your people. And so, capacity building is something that I have always embraced as a mindset that my my role and and, and I think you nailed this one too. The idea of another one of those balances is what's good for me and, and then the greater good. What are mm. we doing for others? Mm-hmm. And I have always embraced capacity building as one of the core elements of my being is how can I enhance the journey for other people? What are some things that I can do to make other people's lives better? Whether it's children in my school where I'm a, I'm a principal, the staff, the families, the parents, the community, even just interactions with people out in the world, right? At restaurants, grocery stores, you know, other drivers. I try to enhance other drivers' experience as much as I can. 
and and I, I allow people to cut me off, and it doesn't bother me so much. I, I wave and say hi, and I, I think good thoughts for them. <laughs> and the whole idea, though, being that we can, we can build capacity always. It can be something we're always working on. So what I, where we're going at here is when we're having conversations, interactions with folks, and you do this uh, naturally through the course of your podcast series, is asking the right questions. Right? So when we ask people the right questions, it allows them to mull something over, turn something over in their head, or think about it in a different, different way. And we want to be super careful about not adding and planting ideas in our questions. So many times we do that, right? where, we, where we have an idea and then we ask a question to pretend like we're asking the question, right. but we're really telling somebody something. Right. It's like, would you like to spend the day watching TV today or would you like to mow the lawn? <laughs> and it, and it's kind of like, well, yeah, there's a right answer to that. And instead, we want to ask open-ended questions like, what would you do today? What would you like to do today that would make you feel really useful and productive? Right. And that, I mean, even that's not super open-ended, but we want to ask questions that enable folks to consider something and, and think about it. Like, and even just asking folks, why? Why would you make that decision? Why? What would... What would you like to do here? Why is this important to you? And be authentically interested in their thinking, right? Yeah, with curiosity, right? We ask that why because A, maybe we want the answer and that's less likely than B, which is we want to generate some reflective energy in you. Hmm. So when we do that, when, when we truly process something in our heads, and I'll give you the four steps of reflection here in a second. When we truly process something in our heads, that's when we learn more about it. That's when we gain our skills. That's where we build expertise. When we just do stuff, we're not actually growing and getting better. We're just doing things, right? So uh, here are the four steps of, of self-reflection that we found. And Elisa and I have built something called the reflective cycle, which is the, the predictable pattern of thinking we all go through as we progress towards expertise or build our skills. And in the reflective cycle, basically comprised of these four steps. So one is we build awareness. And build awareness really just means, what's my goal? What do I want to accomplish? What do I want to get better at? What am I curious about? Step two is then we think, okay, so if that's my goal, what can I do to get closer to that goal? And it's not just about creating an action plan. It's about making decisions with intentionality. So if you think about, you know, Eric, when you first start, heard about pickleball, you're like, Really? Tennis mm. on a tiny little court with a wiffle ball. Okay, all right, that's cool, right? Because yeah. the very first moment you thought of, you heard about that or you saw it, you're like, "That's interesting. I want to yeah. do that." Right? You had some curiosity and you set a goal. Well, then you thought very intentionally about, "Well, what do I have to do to get good at this?" Right. So maybe you you went down to the park and you watched some of the the people playing, or maybe you went on YouTube and you said, "What in the world is pickleball?" No, I got I got beat up by a seventy year old gentleman repeatedly. That's how I got into it, Pete. Okay, so you but you you went out you actually went on the pickleball court and you tried a little yeah. bit, right? You grabbed one of those little oversized ping pong paddles and you're like, I'll, <laughs> I'll do this, right? So you went out there and you made decisions to try. You made decisions to look it up. You made mm -hmm. decisions to try to figure it out because you were interested in the goal, mm -hmm. right? So step one was to have the goal. Step two is what can I do about it? Now step three is to pay very good attention to the cause and effect relationship between what you've done and what you've tried and what you're doing and the results you're getting so far. Mm -hmm. And this is where most of us, in particular in education, get tripped up because we don't intentionally draw the cause and effect between what I did and what I got. 
Mm-hmm. So you maybe, and this is hypothetical, and you don't have to tell me the truth, Eric. It's okay. <laughs> maybe you went online and you looked up some YouTube videos and you got some strategy and you got the paddle and all this stuff. And then you went down and you're playing the 70-year-old dude and you're like, all right, I'm, I'm ready for you, man. Let's uh-huh. do this. And uh-huh. then he whooped you uh-huh. and you're like, gosh, it'd be very easy for you to say, man, I'm terrible at this. Or uh-huh. maybe this isn't my sport or this is no good. Mm-hmm. I'll bet you turned it over in your head because you were so committed to the outcome of learning this that you thought, huh, some of my strategies didn't work so well. Like when I went up on the on the net mm-hmm. and I was trying to be real close, dude was really good about just putting it by me on one side or the other. So maybe right. I have to time when I come up to the net a little bit differently, right? So you were you were thinking about it and you were strategizing and you're coming up with some some cause and effect between what you did and what you got. And only then can you go to the fourth step, which is to adapt and adjust and to try to do something differently as a result. So often, and and just think about this, all right? Think about all your friends and and colleagues in education and all the experiences that you have heard about or had yourselves with school improvement plans, with lesson planning, with interventions, right? Where we say, this is the outcome that we want. This is our target. This is the goal, whatever. And then we build a plan. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we work and we work and we work and we try to build the plan together. And at some point we come back together and we say, huh, we need to have, we need to figure out what our, goal. we might, even, we might look at the data and say, this, this is, this was effective. This, this is strong data. These are weak data. Right. We very rarely point the finger right back to specifically what we did to get those data. Why, why is that? Why do we shy away from that? Because it hurts. Mm. <laughs> Because, because when we see data that are not favorable, we have to look at ourselves and say, I did this. And as a result of me doing it this way, this is, this is what we got. Right. It's really easy for us to look at and say, well, this kid struggled with this concept. As opposed to saying, I struggled conveying this concept mm-hmm. to that kid. The way I did it did not work for this kid. Mm-hmm. I, I could do, it's really more difficult to look at and you know, to have, hold the mirror up and say, what can I do differently to help this kid learn right. better? Right. It's really easy to say, well, this is a kid that, that struggles. As, as a principal, oh, this is a the teacher who's ineffective. Oh, this is a principal who's not cutting the mustard. It's really easy to cast the, the oh, this is a family that doesn't have its act together. Right, as opposed to really honestly looking at the controllable part, which is what we do that impacts the outcome. So that cause and effect relationship, if there's one thing that will make a huge difference in this work is being open and reflective on that cause and effect relationship between what we did and what we got as a direct result of what we did. Mm. And I think both for leaders and for our educators, I think we're in that same boat, right? Yeah, absolutely. So as a capacity builder, our number one charge is to help draw that, draw people's attention to that and ask and craft the right questions, give them opportunities to collaborate and discuss and problem solve and, and like I said, mull it over and to consider it so that uh, folks have the opportunity to truly reflect on their practice. Wow, Pete, you've given us a lot to think about. One of the things I'll do a little bit later in the podcast is try to summarize all of this. And I'm trying to put it in context around sort of the intersectionality of some other podcast guests, as well as, you know, findings inside of our outlier study. And we think you've got some of that context to share with us just in terms of your new book projects. So we know you've got one called uh, Chasing the Show. And then you've also got one called uh, Always Strive to Be a Better You, something to do with a sticky note, I imagine. Uh, see, I've been listening the whole time. Um, yeah, yeah, good. So let, 
share with us how those books really fit into this overall uh, theme today of capacity building. So the two books that you're mentioning, one is called Chasing the Show, and it's a young adult novel, and it's a, a story about a teenage kid who thinks he's going to be a professional athlete. And it kind of follows the ups and downs of that goal and that dream. And because I'm a capacity builder, because I'm a former teacher and principal, I couldn't just write a story. I couldn't just write a novel. It's got to be a novel with a purpose. It's got to have some capacity building elements to it. So what I think is really super cool and what I'm really proud of this book about is it follows the kid's journey and it follows the parallel journey of his parents, one of his teachers, coach, classmates, friends, so that we see this journey from multiple perspectives and have an opportunity to really engage in some discussion and some self-reflection about how this, this young person makes decisions and whether they're effective decisions or ineffective decisions and then how the adults in his life support and nurture the goal and the simultaneous reality that you got to have a plan B in life. Mm. And it's, so what we found is that the teachers are teaching uh, this book or reading this book with their classes. We've got coaches reading it with their teams. We've got parents reading it with their kids. We put on the website uh, some discussion guides. There's no curriculum. There's no lesson plans or anything, but there are discussion guides so that as you're reading it, there's great, great opportunities just to engage in conversation and reflection about the story. So I've, I like to think of it as an entertaining and helpful book. Uh, that's Chasing the Show. And then the new book that's coming out, it, it'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks. It's a social psychology project where I basically profile seven regular normal people, people with regular person DNA. And they're extraordinarily successful people that by birth, you wouldn't think, oh, there's nothing really special about this person. Somehow they have put together lives that are extraordinary. And to to uh, paraphrase Plato's age-old question, they have sought out and are working towards happy, virtuous, good lives. And what I've done is I've extracted 13 kind of common life lessons. I call them key learnings from their seven experiences. And I share those 13 key learnings through the lens of their stories. And it's, it's a, I think, I think it's a, just a fabulous opportunity to explore people from different walks of life and different races and different backgrounds and just neat, neat stories. There's seven people that I admire and respect and love really deeply. And I'm super grateful that they gave their time. And I've known them combined for a total of 132 years, which <laughs> explains why I don't have any hair left wow. on top of my head. But <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's such a, such a neat project and I've, I'm in love with it and I'm kind of nervous. And you know, it's, you get to that point as an author where you like submit to publisher and I'm like, I know. I don't know if it's really ready. And then I've been so in love with writing the project that I, I'm kind of sad that the writing part is over. But uh, I'm thrilled to have people be able to read it and, and hopefully gain immense uh, value in, in their lives just from hearing the stories of those seven people. So thank you for asking about that. I'm super, super excited. I thought I might have a chance to be in that book on the ordinary part, but then when you got to the extraordinary bulls, I think we got we got cut out on that uh, deliminator. You know what? I I had hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of people to choose from, Eric. And so I don't feel bad about that. You know, as you read it, you can just insert your name wherever you need to. I, I, sometimes I do that just to make myself feel better. Well, Pete, thank you. This is the part of the show when we actually turn it over to Bolsey and he shows us his amazing summarization skills. Bowles, what you got? 
Well, first of all, EP, I think you and I were probably numbers eight and nine on that list. We just <laughs> missed the cut for the book. Almost. Yeah. And and uh, Pete said earlier something about EP being fun with a thesaurus. So I wanted to think of a good word. <laughs> and and the word I'm coming up with today is intersectionality. Um, I, when, when I, yeah, that there you jazz go. hands for our listeners. We've got jazz hands. <laughs> Seven syllables. Intersectionality. What? When I think back over our <laughs> last several podcasts, we've had folks come on and talk about PLC, Superintendent Janelle Keating from mm-hmm. uh, White River. Um, we've had Chuck Celine and Suzanne Gertz, your neighbors over in Spokane at Gonzaga University, talking about their school improvement framework that leads to absolutely extraordinary results. We've had Doug Kaplicki come on, principal at uh, in Yakima School District, come on and talk just straight up about culture. And today, mm-hmm. you know, we really went down the journey of uh, self-reflection. And really all of these things, all of these vehicles, what the big takeaway for EP and I, as we were doing some pre-production talk yesterday is, man, we're talking about several different vehicles that really are vehicles that are designed to maximize school culture. And when we Mm -hmm. maximize school culture defined by all the constituencies inside and outside of the schoolhouse, we've really got a fighting chance uh, at improvement. So Mm -hmm. lots of deep connections built today, Pete. Um, One, self-reflection equals growth. We don't learn from our uh, experience. We learn from reflection. Um, When I think about reflection, something that was a huge takeaway for me is, you know, I think about self-reflection, but actually building that culture of uh, collective reflection. So many parallels Mm -hmm. to to other work there that maybe our best reflective practices are actually done with others. Asking the right questions, way more important than writing a beautiful 25-page school improvement plan. And Pete, uh, you're on here with two former principals as well. And I'm sure that all of us have made that mistake of, thinking we were going down the right track and not getting uh, enough input, collective input, the right input. Um, Love the idea about actually super simple process, really. What's our desired end state for the school? And then how do we build capacity? Something that came up over and over again today in others so that we can reach that uh, collective, elegant and and moral imperative goal. So other big ideas uh, and essential questions that that, uh, really came to mind, second half of the podcast, Loved how you started with basically remember your why. We heard Randy Russell, superintendent in Freeman School District, uh, talk about, boy, in these tough times, we remember the why. Love the idea of middle managers, lack of autonomy, walking a tightrope. I think all skilled principals figure that out. And then again, connecting to something Doug Kaplicki says over and over again. I don't think he said it in the podcast, but Doug comes from a sales and marketing background and said really the biggest essential skill that you need to have as a principal is you got to be great at sales. So uh, again, tons of connections there. I finally think I know what self-care means as a result of hearing you talk about it. And it really is how do we set those boundaries in our lives and then kind of map to those activities that help make us feel better, help us become our our better us's, uh, as you talk about over and over again. Then finally, I'd be a little remiss if we didn't talk about the four steps of reflection, because that seemed like that was fair, a fairly important piece. And I'll wrap it up here. I could have added lots more. I added it on the fly. Um, but the idea that we first have to have awareness, you know, and, and tying it to an earlier thing you said around, you know, sometimes the data hurts. I mean, I... I think about every time I step on the scale, the reason I don't weigh myself very often is I'm not very happy with the weight I'm at. So, you know, having the courage to confront that, set some goals, take the steps that we know we need to take, and then really ask that cause and effect question. You know, are the activities I'm undertaking getting me closer to or or farther from my goals? Something I connected with at the end is this whole journey around uh, self-reflection and the four steps that you so beautifully articulated 
really is a personal accident research plan. So, you know, kind of our own personal PDSA cycle, which then feeds our school improvement plan, ideally our district improvement plan. Pete, it's all amazingly connected. And we thank you so much for your wisdom. I'm going to have to listen to this two or three times to take 40% out of it, what somebody smarter than me might. And we <laughs> so appreciate your time. Well, I, I appreciate it. Eric, I think you did a nice job summarizing that. And I, again, appreciate the opportunity to be on the show today and, and chat with you, gentlemen. I really appreciate that. It is amazing, all of those pieces and the way that they uh, gel together. Um, Pete, so this is back to you. Uh, how do we do today? Is there anything that we missed or are there any parting thoughts that you'd like to share before we sign off here? I don't think you missed anything. I think, uh, I mean, obviously we could talk for days and days just about leadership and capacity building in this work. And I think if there's one thing that I just wanted to, to uh, insert at this point, it would be that reflection is a habit. We want to develop that habit. So it's something, and habits, A, habits develop um, automatically, or things that we repeat. We can also be in charge of them. So we can create habits for ourselves by intentionally engaging in certain reflective behaviors will help build those reflective habits. So whatever we need to do to help remind ourselves to engage in reflection, a little note on the computer screen, a little you tie a string around your finger, whatever it is that you do to remind you to do the things that are most important to you, that's how we develop and build those habits. So that would be the one piece that I would just add to that as we move forward. A beautiful summary of the summary, Pete. Yeah, thank you. That is amazing. Yes. And, and there was a study that was done for uh, people like in retirement homes, the end of their life. And they said, what would you do uh, uh, more or less of? They said, we would risk more, we would work less, and we would reflect more. So I think that just goes right into that uh, that envelope that you're that you're at. Pete, amazing! Thank you again for being on the show. Oh, thank you, gentlemen, and uh, look forward to maybe coming back another time. We'll wrap some more. And thanks to all of you for joining us today on Outliers in Education. You can find this episode and more anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast, or listen to us online at effectiveness.org. Until next time, this has been Outliers in Education. If you'd like to find out how to gather the data you need to help drive positive change in your school or district, take a moment to visit CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness, at effectiveness.org. Better data, better decisions, better schools. Effectiveness.org.